daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, U.S. and India announce multiple defense and tech deals during Prime Minister Narendra Modi's trip to the United States. So, what does a closer U.S.-India relationship mean to the Indo-Pacific region? Beijing slams U.S. indictments of Chinese companies and individuals over fentanyl. And we will also take a look at China's Dragon Boat Festival holiday economy. Kyriakos Mitsotakis wins by a landslide victory in Greek general elections. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. China has become a key player in the global new energy vehicle market. CEO Benedict Saboka of the Eurasian Resources Group, a leading natural resources provider, is attributing the success to the Chinese government's commitment to sustainable development and its green energy initiative. Saboka made a comment ahead of the Summer Davos Forum set to open on Tuesday in Tianjin. In the meantime, Saboka noted that China is not only leading the way in electric vehicles and electric mobility, but is also making significant strides in other new energy sectors such as solar and wind power. In an interview with my colleague Xu Yawen, Saboka also noted that his company has benefited significantly under the Belt and Road Initiative, as the BRI provides an opportunity to bring to build rather. Global green value chain. Here is the interview. First of all, Mr. Saboka, you have actively participated in the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum in the past. So, coming back to the summer Davos in Tianjin this time, what are your expectations? In which areas will you be paying extra attention to? Well, thank you, Yawen.、Um, the, the summer Davos、uh, event in Tianjin is one of the most important conferences、um, as part of the World Economic Forum's glo- global summit series. Uh, the core goal of this summit is to to really reinvigorate innovation, entrepreneurship, and、uh, multi-stakeholder collaboration across Asia and in the world.、Mm-hmm. Um, the global economy is facing pretty significant challenges due to inflation, supply chain security, geopolitical imbalances,、um, access to critical raw materials, a lot of volatility in markets. Um, so we we believe that that cooperation on trade and investment will be an absolute key feature. For the Asian nations that are participating in the Summer Davos in Tianjin,、uh, for us as a company ERG, we're very proud to support China in becoming the world's leading producer of new energy materials and new energy technologies, electric vehicles and new energy vehicles in particular. We have、uh, long-standing supply agreements with Chinese customers. We're one of the largest importers of battery materials into into China,、uh, and China for us is the most important market. It dominates the global electric vehicle market and most of the energy transition technologies. Today,、um, China has just around sixty percent global market share in electric vehicles. So we we really welcome the recent announcement of the central government of, in China of a purchase tax exemption. For new electric vehicle purchases, we believe this is a key measure to support、um, the the transition to a lower carbon economy in the transportation sector.、Mm-hmm. Um, so China again is leading the the market here in terms of regulation and governance. As you mentioned, China、um, has the largest EV market around the globe, and then ERG as the global supplier of raw materials. 
It supplies indispensable material in lithium battery production, which can be used in making electric vehicles. So, what opportunities do you see for your company and also for the industry to explore in the Chinese market, especially in the EV industry?、Um, China continues to be the main driving force behind the global transition to、um, to new energy、uh, vehicles. The country has already announced plans for the ban of the sale of internal combustion engines vehicles by 2035. But、uh, I guess, given the rapid、uh, rate of EV adoption and the speed at which、um, this happens in China, we would not be surprised if if、um, the internal combustion engine would be phased out forward、uh, before 2030 or even earlier.、Um, mm. And China again is leading the way, and not just in electric vehicles and, and、uh, electric mobility, but also in other new energy and transition energy. Uh, materials, whether it's solar, whether it's wind,、um, we've seen significant investments of Chinese companies in China, but also outside of China in wind and other renewable energy.、Um, so we, have, for us, China is is by far the single largest market. We have、uh, very strong and productive partnerships with Chinese stakeholders and partners.、Um, significant portfolio of joint ventures. Some of them go back already fifteen, almost twenty years when we、um, built some of our first operations in in Central Asia and Kazakhstan with the cooperation of Chinese partners. It's much bigger. Um, than、uh, than just、uh, exporting or importing of materials,、uh, which historically been something that we've done as a company, but we've now really been working with with our partners as part of Belt and Road Initiative, as part of、uh, capacity reallocation and other initiatives. And, and now we see some of those imbalances on questions around de-risking and security of global supply chain. Um, I think that's、um, th- that's going to be very important to really give comfort to the world that the green energy transition really is a global challenge. It's not a geopolitical or regional competition.、Uh, it is a global challenge because climate change will affect all of us. So we have to work together across collaboratively across industry and across uh, uh, companies and, and governments、uh, to make sure that we cooperate. And this is where where the Samada was is so important. It brings together、uh, companies, governments, and civil society sectors、um, to work together to deal with larger problems that are too big for each every single. One of us to solve individually.、Mm-hmm. We know this year marks the tenth anniversary of China's Belt and Road Initiative, in short BRI. And ERG has been participated in this initiative in the past. For instance, you mentioned in Kazakhstan,、uh, ERG has partnered with China National Petroleum Corp to set up a about two hundred fifty million dollars wind power facility as renewable power project. So, how would you assess the cooperative mechanism established under the BRI? Yeah, look, one of the one of the key strengths of the Belt and Road Initiatives,、um, even beyond the just economic synergy and the long term nature of this cooperation, is is the opportunity to build global green value chains. And this is where the the Belt and Road Initiative will be essential to link regional and global development with the green energy transition, which will enable. Proliferation of trade, supply of critical raw materials, or investment in in regions that do require investments, particularly in power and energy infrastructure. So, for us, the participation in the Belt and Road Initiative is so important. And we've been, I mean, our first project,、um, as we're located in in、uh, our original assets in Kazakhstan, which is one of the key countries of the Belt and Road Initiative. We we started our first Belt and Road project before、uh, the Belt and Road Initiative was called as such、uh, about twenty、mm. twenty years ago. Uh, so for us,、uh, we, we've been we've benefited significantly as a company, but also Kazakhstan as a country has benefited significantly from the Belt and Road Initiative, because the interconnectivity it offers allows organizations and governments the opportunity to work completely in in lockstep closely together to ensure the viability of green value chains. Green value chains need to be global;、um, they are going to be competitive only if they are global. 
Um, but of course, we need to increase transparency across across these operations and across the producing entities, because we have to make sure that as the supply chain for the green energy transition, with a very strong link into the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, we have to make sure that this is done in a sustainable way. This is uh, the green energy transition is the single biggest purchase order in the history of of modern times. Uh, so we have to make sure that as this supply chain expands, it is done in a in a in an ESG uh, compliant way. Um, and we have to make sure that um, that this supply chain is expanded um, in a way that is long-term sustainable. And this is where the Belt and Road really lies the, the foundation for future growth uh, between China and Kazakhstan, uh, but also other regions in Africa and South America uh, where we have operations. Uh, because the Belt and Road Initiative, in combination with the new energy transition, um, it enhances interconnectivity, more cross-border trade, investment, cooperation, science and development. Um, and of course, energy production is ultimately energy is is, uh, is economic development. Indeed. As we know, China accounts for about 45% of ERG's business. And as the country's economic policies gradually shift towards the transformation of high-value-added, high-tech industries while maintaining a sustainable development, what's the plan of ERG to align with China's high-quality development? Yeah, this this links back to um, um, to the evolution of, of the role of China in global supply chains. When historically China has been a, a significant import of raw materials from our operations in Brazil or in, in Africa mm-hmm. or in Kazakhstan, and an export of um, of lower value capital goods, this has really transitioned now into uh, China being still a very large importer, and in many cases the largest importer of raw materials is being converted into a country that now exports some of the, the highest quality uh, technologies, whether those are in, in wind energy, in, uh, in other renewable energy production and technology, in, um, in construction services. Um, so we've probably been, been one of the first um, in our industry to really leverage, the, for example, the construction expertise that we're seeing from our Chinese partners in building our operations out. For example, in the Congo, we built uh, the largest, the single largest uh, cobalt uh, processing facility in the DRC using a Chinese uh, engineering company that helped us with their technology. So we've been one of the first uh, about 10 years ago to, to actually get access to this kind of, kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so we will we'll actually, we will aim to leverage our production assets and their growth potential in, in Central Asia, in Africa, in South America, uh, to support the immense economic growth and potential on the renewable energy side and the new energy vehicle side that we're seeing in China, um, but also benefit from the exporting and technology expansion as we see it, whether it's in electric vehicles um, in battery technology. Um, and probably battery technology is one of those key areas where China has a, a, a 10-year advantage over, over most other countries. The innovation today in energy storage comes from China and not just innovation in, in terms of the chemistry of the individual battery storage technologies, but, but also the industrialization and the speed of the rollout is unparalleled in China compared to other. So uh, when you want to store energy and you want to store renewable energy, there's no way around China. For us, that's a very good because we, we benefit from that. I see. And lastly, Mr. Saboka. We know the theme of this year's forum is entrepreneurship, the driving force of the global economy. So throughout your professional journey, whether it was during your time at Boston Consulting Group, establishing your own advisory company, or serving as an investor in high-tech startups, and now as the CEO of ERG, what are your management principles? <laughs> That's a very good question. Entrepreneurship yeah. is at, at the core of what economic activity is about. Uh, it is about disruption, it's about innovation, it's about taking risks and taking uh, and taking new approaches to old problems. 
I mean, the, the most successful companies and organizations um, in the last 10, 20 years at the core of this these companies is innovation and uh, innovation entrepreneurship are very closely linked because entrepreneurship is very much about doing something that other people have not done before um, against all the opposition and odds of so many people that believe that risk taking is not a good thing um, and uh, and doing something different. And this is again where China has really taken, particularly around the the energy transition, has been able to show the world that um, that innovation and uh, application of new technologies can actually translate into economic benefit and into and into economic development. Um, again, today, China is by far the largest producing market photovoltaic cells uh, for wind energy. Um, it is by far the largest market in batteries today. And China has about a 60% market share in global battery supply, uh, which is one of the key components of the energy transition. Um, and this can only come because there are companies in China that have innovated constantly, um, that have taken risks that have made significant investments in unknown technologies and unknown approaches. So ultimately, innovation and entrepreneurship will always pay off. CEO Benedict Saboka with the Eurasian Resources Group talking to my colleague Xu Yawen. You are listening to World Today. Stay with us. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. U.S. and India have announced a range of defense and technology deals during during Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's three-day visit to the United States. India has agreed to buy armed MQ-9B Sea Guardian drones produced by U.S. defense contractor General Atomics. The two sides have also signed a deal which will see General Electric co-produce fighter jet engine in India. In the meantime, American memory chipmaker Micron will open a 2.75 billion U.S. dollar semiconductor assembly and test facility in India. The agreements also include efforts to boost cooperation in space. Modi was only the third world leader to make a state visit to the United States since President Joe Biden took office. Joining us now on the line is Professor Swaran Singh, Chairman of the Center for International Politics, Organization, and Disarmament, with Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor. Thank you for having me on your program. So, what would you make of these deals reached during Modi's visit? In fact, we understand India was actually in the past. Denied some of the critical U.S. technologies, right? So, do you think Modi's visit this time marked a turning point in this regard? I think you are right. Uh, United States uh, is generally very reluctant to share its uh, frontier and advanced technologies with countries other than its close allies. And the relationship with India has been long time in the making. You could go back to 1995, when for the first time two sides had decided to work together, and then it took 10 years to sign in 2005 their first civil nuclear cooperation and defense cooperation framework. 
So it's an incremental gradual progression. So I wouldn't call it a turning point, but I think definitely an inflection point. The way Indian Prime Minister was received in Washington, D.C. and also in New York. And the long joint statement of 58 paragraphs, which details on a whole lot of sectors where two countries are willing to work together and not just uh, import technologies and equipment, but also work on joint production and joint development in defense sectors and a whole range of other sectors of advanced and critical technologies, uh, makes me see as part of the gradual progression. And therefore, as I said, I would call it an inflection point and not a turning point. Okay. Now, some people say these agreements, including hosting Prime Minister Modi itself, uh, mark a big push by Washington to draw New Delhi into its own orbit. I mean, uh, Washington's orbit as part of a bigger, you know, geopolitical strategy to work with partners or allies to counter China. What is your take, Professor? I think, yes, there are uh, elements and there are people in United States who would uh, like to view uh, the engagement in that perspective. Uh, but uh, obviously, India has repeatedly clarified, uh, as well as the reality of India being, for instance, current chair of Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which will have subbed next week, uh, early next month. Uh, and India is part of BRICS, India stays close to Russia, has a strong economic relationship with China. Uh, and on Ukraine crisis, India has maintained very strong proactive neutrality. So uh, I think United States is broadly engaging India on India's own terms. And there is no question of India bandwagoning or joining or towing an American line. India is a relatively large country, large economy, rapidly growing. Uh, and therefore, I think increasingly this has to be seen as, uh, I think, give and take or complementary uh, relationship, if not relationship exactly of equals. And that recognition over time has come upon uh, India from United States. So I think increasingly United States understands that there are things that India will do and there are things that India will not do. Okay. So in other words, Professor, you would argue that a closer security relationship with Washington does not necessarily mean that New Delhi will stop maintaining a non-aligned foreign foreign policy. We know that's a very important legacy on the part of New Delhi. Uh, indeed, uh, repeatedly Indian leaders have mentioned non-alignment is part of India's DNA in that sense. And therefore, we of course currently uh, have a new nomenclature and call it strategic autonomy. Uh, and also sometimes we refer it uh, as a shift from non-alignment to multi-alignment, which means building partnerships in as many sectors with as many countries as possible. Uh, and uh, engaging seriously the global south in that sense. So India is trying to engage uh, as many partners as possible. And therefore, uh, non-alignment has over time become multi-alignment, where I think the emerging economy of India uh, will have to uh, build uh, mm. critical partnerships with many countries in that sense. And uh, non-alignment is something that United States understands very clearly is part of India's uh, very civilizational thought process. Mm. So, commenting on Mr. Modi's U.S. trip on Monday, 
A Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson said that security cooperation between any two、uh, countries or nations should not really undermine the stability or peacefulness in a particular region or target any third party. Professor, what is your understanding of the wording of the Chinese foreign ministry here? Is there, I mean, is there any likelihood, any possibility that this enhanced security ties between U.S. and India could be a source of regional instability for, for example, for the Asia Pacific? I understand what you are referring to.、Uh, there are again voices in China. And that sometimes visualize that India would be becoming a countervailing, countervailing power or a shield in United States strategy of competing or contesting with China, and that of course has been repeatedly again denied. Some of you, your listeners, will remember President Donald Trump had twice formally made. Uh, a kind of a suggestion to mediate in China-India relations, and India had said that we can、uh, deal with the, the China between two of us, and therefore there is no need for any other country to worry about it. And I don't see that、uh, as a possibility at all. And India has constantly been focusing and repeatedly underlining need to ensure regional stability and security and prosperity. So in no way I think、uh, India will be. Uh, doing things that、uh, United States and some of the neocons and radicals in United States would uh, uh, like to see India doing, and、uh, I don't think India's relationship with United States will add to regional instability in any manner. Okay, so actually, due to some you know issues related to、uh, human rights. Um, President Joe Biden has come under criticism, mostly from the international community and from from some of the human rights activists, for granting Mr. Modi a state visit. And 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 actually, during a joint press conference with Biden at the White House, Mr. Modi stressed that democracy was a shared value of the U.S. and India. He said something like.、Uh, Democracy was in our DNA, was in India's DNA, if my memory is correct. Now, Professor, in reality, do you think the U.S. and India really see eye to eye with one another on, on things like、uh, democratic value and human rights? I think,、uh, first of all, the beauty of、uh, democracy is to also equally allow space for. Contrarian voices for people who do not agree with the the official policy or official way of looking at what are important areas to focus on. And、uh, yes, you're right that Indian Prime Minister did say that democracy is in India's DNA, and、uh, democratic systems of decision making are ancient to India. So ancient civilization of India also had similar traditions. And if one has to see a country which has been most vehement in promoting democracy, it is United States. United States goes around the world preaching democracy, and indeed, because we over the last hundred years have now 120 countries that claim to be democracies, and the United States itself has a Freedom House、um, international NGO. Which publishes an annual report that talks about how democracies are today: electoral democracies, majoritarian democracies, 
proletarian democracies authoritarian democracies democracies are also of all kinds in that sense today so uh, yes there is definitely democracy in, uh, an important link between india and united states uh, and that makes both sides uh, understand each other in terms of the two political systems as to how they operate and how they can really depend on each other and work together so expectations are easy to meet when it comes to uh, political systems being similar Uh, but of course there are going to be variations uh, in when you go into detail about each of these issues of what kind of democracy exactly exists uh, in united states and india and what are their views on issues like human rights mm okay thank you as always for joining us and for providing for providing us with some uh, uh rational analysis i should say so that was professor swaran singh chairman of the center for international politics organization and disarmament with jawaharlal nehru university you're listening to world today we'll be back after a short break From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing, Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment. Income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance, and principles. You can follow the stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Welcome back to World Today. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin, Beijing. Beijing has criticized the U.S. authorities for charging four Chinese companies and eight individuals with trafficking chemicals used in manufacturing of fentanyl. Chinese Foreign Ministry says this is a typical example of arbitrary detention and unilateral sanctions, adding it is completely illegal and seriously damages the foundation of China-U.S. anti-drug cooperation. The U.S. Department of Justice announced the charges just days after U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken made a trip to Beijing. Fentanyl has become an important issue in the tense relations between Beijing and Washington. So, joining us now on the line is Rick Dunham. 
co-director of the Global Business Journalism Program was Tsinghua University. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure, glad to be with you. So. It is the first time that the U.S. authorities have charged the Chinese companies and individuals for trafficking fentanyl precursor chemicals inside the United States, rather than shipping them to Mexico. That's something new. So,、uh, Rick, why do you think, from the Chinese government's perspective, these charges and these、uh, relevant, you know, arrests or detentions? Represents arbitrary detention and unilateral sanctions. Well, we can get to the U.S. government's perspective later, but from the Chinese government's perspective,、uh, this situation is, is one where these chemicals are legal in China. They're highly regulated,、uh, but they're legal. And the wording that was used, arbitrary detention,、uh, was almost exactly what the United States used when Russia.、Uh, Detained Brittany Griner, the famous、uh, women's basketball player, and、uh, and kept her a prisoner for、uh, nearly a year, sentenced her to ten years because she was carrying vaping cartridges, which were illegal. I mean, which were legal in the United States, but illegal in Russia. So that's the situation here.、Uh, that the United that, that that what what the companies were doing is legal in China, but illegal、uh, by its use by what they were what they were selling it for on the internet. Uh, in America and in Mexico.、Hmm. Okay, so digging deeper into、uh, into what you have elaborated, like you said,、uh, it is、uh, legal in China, and actually, you know, following some、uh, U.S. China negotiations.、Um, In, in, I guess it was back in 2018,、uh, in late 2018, right? right? That was the on the sidelines of a G20 summit、uh, in held in Argentina. So that was the basically following that round of negotiation,、uh, Chinese authorities listed fentanyl-related chemicals as controlled narcotics in 2019. Meaning China regulates their production and sale, but like you said, this does not mean their exports. The exports of these chemicals are banned because,、uh, frankly speaking, they could be used for other legal purposes as well. So,、right. Beijing says the responsibility of preventing normal chemicals from flowing into the drug supply chain. Lies with the country that receives these chemicals, namely the country that imports these chemicals. Do you think this is a fair point or a fair argument?、Uh, I do believe it's a fair argument.、Uh, and when, when, I mean, when there's a situation like like this, where、uh, there is a legitimate use for a chemical, where it's not just、uh, a chemical that is used for illegal purposes, I think it is up to the、uh, local country, the country. Uh, that, that receives it, and and you know, in, in this in this case, that is the United States, and the United States decided to go after these uh, companies uh, for reasons that we could we could discuss whether whether they are legitimate or whether whether they are politically inspired.、Mm, yeah. So, by the way, Rick, how would you look at the fact that the United States, which is home to like、uh, around five percent of the global population, Consumes some eighty percent of the world's opioid. It's true, and I mean that this is something that、uh, has been an argument for years when the United States has tried to crack down on、um, on opium in Afghanistan or、uh, drugs coming across from Mexico or Colombia.、Uh, the fact that the fact that、uh, 
there's a that there's a demand in the United in the United States, and it's a problem. I think that what's happening right now uh, is that opioids have been a very serious problem for the past 15 years, and the United States has, has basically gone after the supply end and not the demand end. Originally, it was doctors illegally prescribing opioids, yeah. and that pretty much that crackdown worked. And so we've moved to these artificial uh, substances like fentanyl. Mm. And, uh, and, and yes, it's a, it's a legitimate issue because the reason why it's coming into the U.S. is that there's a demand. And also, you know, the, the Sinaloa drug cartel in Mexico sees a very big profit opportunity here uh, because U.S. government eliminated the doctors uh, prescribing. So now you, 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 you have, you, but you just have giant demand. And uh, the U.S. has decided rather than putting away everybody in prison who uses it, they're trying to go after the suppliers. And we could we could debate that. You really have to do both things at once. And, mm. and it's a legitimate complaint to say uh, U.S. is just focusing uh, focusing on the suppliers and, and not punishing the users. Yeah. So judging from the way that certain um, American politicians, let's say, let's not say right. it's the entire United States of America, but judging from right. the way some U.S. politicians talk about, say, Mexico or China's right. role in this, for example, some right. Republicans are talking right. about, you know, even uh, sending army to Mexico to... Right. Uh, yep. right. Donald Trump is, Donald Trump talked about that. He talked about, he talked about bombs and... Uh, <laughs> And, and, and troops, I know exactly. Uh, I mean, I think that that's over the top, over the top rhetoric, uh, mm. and you can't do that. That's war. I mean, you, it's that's like the, I mean, the Russians going in and, and bombing in, in Ukraine. That that's against international law. Uh, and and yes, the ra- the rhetoric is being ratcheted up. Anti Mexico, anti China plays into the Republican playbook for the nineteen twenty four, uh, uh, the twenty twenty four election. I mean, at, at, at the same time, I think that there is a legitimate uh, reason to go after companies that are advertising on the uh, on the Internet and talking about how you know, they have a lot of customers in America and Mexico and and just sending sending this this through, quote, self shipping in cartons that are that are uh, labeled dog food or nuts or motor oil. You know, that there are some bad companies that are trying to take advantage of the situation. But that that doesn't excuse any of the uh, over the top rhetoric from Donald Trump or from from other Republicans right now. Mm. So um, you know, sanctioning uh, some of these uh, Chinese companies or individuals over fentanyl is something that the U.S. authorities began to do recently. I think not right. until earlier this year. But right. in the meantime, since the year 2020, we understand some of China's anti-drug institutions, some of China's national labs, have been sanctioned, uh, have been under a sanction list by the United States over the so-called human rights issue in Xinjiang. So, right. Rick, would you agree that these things, uh, these happenings, will undermine the foundation of the China-U.S. anti-drug cooperation? Yeah, I, I think by definition. They undermine the, the foundation of it, and the two governments really have to discuss this very, very seriously. Do they want to cooperate? Uh, I mean, obviously, international drug trafficking is a big problem, and 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 when you when you partner with with others, you're going to have disagreements. And the United States and China have political disagreements, but I th- I think that the current situation uh, 
uh, has resulted in a lack of confidence between the two two countries. Uh, and 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 and, uh, and if they want, if the two countries want to uh, to to have uh, to to be unified to fight, they're going to have to talk these things through. The United States will have to accept accept some compromise uh, from the position it has now, or there will not be uh, the trust and cooperation. Yeah, let's wait and see what will happen. Let's just wait for some political wisdom on the part of the politicians from both sides. But thank you. We have been speaking with Rick Dunham, co-director of the Global Business Journalism Program with Tsinghua University. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology, and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. China's tourism industry displayed strong signs of recovery during the three-day Dragon Boat Festival holiday. Official data shows that a total number of 106 million domestic tourism trips were made during the holiday, up by 32 percent from the figure last year, even higher than the figure back in 2019 before the COVID-19 pandemic. Revenue from domestic tourism reached 37 billion yuan, or some 5.2 billion U.S. dollars, up by 45 percent year on year. Analysts say the tourism and consumption figures during the holiday show a continued recovery of the Chinese economy. Now, for more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer with Novan Aki Technologies. So Jiahe, now that you are in Hainan, I suppose you must have seen many activities during this year's、uh, uh, Dragon Boat Festival. So, what changes in consumers' demand, and are you seeing the booming leisure sports industry during the festival? Well, what we have seen this year is very interesting. That you know, the dragon boat competition has suddenly gone popular all over the country.、Uh, that's something quite different from what we have saw in the past. Because you know, the dragon boat festival is a very traditional Chinese southern activity. It's not prevailing actually in the middle,、uh, north, or the western parts of China. It's it's, it's mainly、uh, you know being very popular in provinces like Guangdong, Guangxi,、uh, Fujian, these kind of provinces. So for many years in the well, this festival, this competition has been there for for like a thousand, two thousand years. But、uh, in the past, it has always been a very regional sport. But this year. Uh, because of the, I think it's because of the spreading of live streaming, short video, all sorts of things. So everyone in the country suddenly watched all these、uh, dragon boat uh, competition uh, during this holiday. So that's, that's quite amazing. I mean, new technology combined with a sport that has been thousands of years.、Mm. And in some places, wrapping leaves for zongzi has become essential for increasing the income of farmers. So how is the zongzi industry helping to boost the rural economy? Well, when we look at this wrapping of rice and pork and egg, all these kind of things, it, it was a very small economy in the past because you know,、uh, looking back thirty, forty years ago, even twenty years ago, most people do their、um, zones by themselves at home, so they only. 
buy the raw materials from the supermarket, which means the farmers around the country can only sell uh, the raw materials, I mean, the leaves, the rice, the pork, these things are not going to make them a very large profit. But nowadays, more and more people are buying, the, you know, the products of Zongs. They don't do them anymore in the home. And some of them are using Zongs as a, a special gift during the festival. So these has has always uh, rose the price of Zongs. I mean, I have personally spent like 200 yuan to buy eight of them to give, uh, you know, packed very beautifully as a gift to my friend. Mm-hmm. So, so that actually means you're costing much more on these products with a similar kind of food that you were consuming 30 years ago. That means a lot of money would have been able to flow to the rural countryside. Mm. And a total of uh, 106 million domestic tourism trips were made during the holiday. So Jiahe, how do you see this domestic tourism and consumption's contribution to China's economy in the second quarter of this year? Are you seeing any new trend of consumptions? Well, currently we see that uh, consumption is rising gradually, not as much as we have been expecting, uh, but the rising trend is still continuing. Uh, the new data showed that the uh, total amount of traveling person, you know, uh, counting by, uh, you know, counting by the head would have rose by about 20% compared with 2019. And the amount of money spent were roughly the same, which means people are more likely to travel nowadays uh, when the long fight against the COVID is actually over. But uh, the amount of money that people are spending is not increasing that much. That's basically because we're still having a large lacking sector that is called the property sector. Currently, the property sector in China is remaining quite soft at this moment, mainly because that has been a very high price and the government is trying to get the bubble away. So looking at all these, we will see the consumption is rising gradually. We look forward to see more consumption to come in the next two quarters. Mm. And what do you think is the current state of the Chinese economy, Jiahe? The exports, consumption, fixed asset investment, these are three pillars of the economy. And how do you look at their respective role in the economy this year? Well, when we look at the economy for the rest of the year, it, it looks like the biggest concern right now is still with the property sector. Basically because, you know, when we look at all economic history, the property sector has always been a very large part of the economy. When the property sector goes upward and you have uh, much more consumption rather than just the house itself. I mean, people buy more houses and this will drag more demand towards things like cement, uh, steel, transportation, construction, all sorts of things on one hand. And when you bought your home, you will buy a lot of other things like television, air conditioner, uh, sofa, all these kind of things. So, so, so it's actually a very strong uh, part of the economy, a very large part of the economy. Uh, one more thing to consider is that you, you don't want the economy to grow at a very high rate at the moment, say six, seven, eight percent, and you have the property market keep on its process of being a bubble and the you know, the price to rent ratio keep on rising to maybe 80, 90 or 100 times. So you don't really want that. You you want a more healthy economic growth, even at a lower growth rate. And China has been promoting the technological self-reliance and the development of the high-end manufacturing, you know, smart manufacturing. So how has this focus on innovation-driven development contributed to the growth of this economy? And tell us more about the industries like NEV and solar panel. Well, China has been promoting its growth of high-tech industry. It has been 
you know, these kind of the, the, the kind of direction that the government has set to businesses have been really helpful uh, with these industries because many businesses start to, uh, you know, focus on these areas. They say, okay, the government is leading us to there. Uh, it's the direction of China to have its better technology in the future. So uh, we will be investing that. And that is also reflected in the capital market. When you look at high-tech companies, they have got uh, much higher valuation in the high-tech industry, you know. Uh, uh, and and the, when the valuation is high, these companies would be able to uh, get much more financing from the capital market compared with uh, the time when the valuation is not high. So so that means there has been a lot of support given to these companies. Mm, and we are also seeing the foreign direct investment has been increasing, and there are a lot of foreign business leaders or CEOs visiting China so far this year. So what does it tell us, and do you expect more to come? I think that's that's a choice that has been made by the global businessmen investors. That despite the tension between China and U.S., people start to realize that China, as a you know, as a nation that has has got a very a stable political environment, has got a very uh, transparent market and a very competitive market. It, it's and, and it got a very large economic scale. Look at its population, 1.4 billion people. It's somewhere in this world that you can never miss. You know, if you uh, combine the population of the whole G7 countries, that's approximately the similar population compared with China. And China has got a you know very stable uh, political and economic environment. So missing the Chinese market is definitely a wrong decision. So for businesses, that also means that if you miss the Chinese market, then someone else will grab it. And, uh, you know, this will cause a very large business gap between the companies who have their stake in China and who does not have their stake in China. So that really explains why the FDIs are actually keep on coming in. Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer with Novan Archie Technologies, talking to my colleague Zhao Yang. You're listening to World Today. Stay tuned. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. In Greece, Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis and his New Democracy Party have won by a landslide in general elections. New Democracy has claimed more than 40% of the votes, which will be enough for Mitsotakis to govern without a coalition partner. A Mitsotakis win had been largely expected, and the markets have reacted positively in the run-up to the elections. Mitsotakis has campaigned on a platform of securing economic growth and a political stability as the country gradually recovers from a brutal, nearly decade-long financial crisis. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Cui Hongjian, head of the European Studies Department with the China Institute of International Studies. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi. So why do you think Mitsotaki was able to win relatively easily? Actually, we understand the latest elections were held after his party came in first in the elections earlier this year in May, but fell short of an outright majority. Mitsotaki then resigned from the position of the prime minister, knowing that a new election law would help him and his party. Do you think that was the main reason for his landslide victory this time? Uh, if we look at the result of the election in Greece, we can find that the uh, not only the first round and also the second round 
the new democracy uh, won a lot, especially comparing with some other parties. So yes, I think the new rule of the uh, election is a very important reason for the uh, uh, ruling party to win again for the election. But I think it's not the main reason, uh, because uh, the uh, uh, popularity for the first and the second round are almost the same. So it shows that uh, new democracy has, uh, I mean, stable, uh, stable uh, support in the average people in Greece. Uh, but of course, I think it's also a uh, support from the average uh, Greece people to the uh, current government. Okay, so actually, um, there have been some, let's say, so-called scandals. Let's put it in this way: there have been some so-called scandals hitting the Mitsotakis government late in its last term, including revelations regarding wiretapping that targeted some of the senior politicians and journalists. Also, in February this year, there was a deadly train crash in Greece, which、um, somehow exposed the problems in the country's safety measures in public transport. So, judging from the election results,、um, Professor Tsui, do you think it is fair? It is fair to say that those happenings did not really shake people's confidence or trust in the Mitsotakis government. Indeed, as we know, during the, uh, the, the uh, especially uh, the recent time,、uh, for the government in Greece,、uh, suffered a lot of the、uh, crisis.、Uh, to some degree,、uh, for some times, the government in、uh, I, I think the、uh, process of、uh, crisis management. So I think that、uh, no matter the scandal、uh, for some uh, uh, politicians or some. You know, on certification from、uh, public people, public opinion towards the government,、uh, we can find out that the uh, uh, the government and also the new democracy did a lot to、uh, a crisis, and especially, I think the、uh, government showed a lot of uh, uh, censors, censors to deal with this uh, crisis. Uh, no matter the、uh, to get some more communication with the public opinion, and also to Uh, have some uh, uh, actions uh, in the parliament and uh, uh, everything. I think that uh, the Greek、uh, Greek people, Greek people,、uh, find out maybe a serious attitude from government towards any kind of crisis,、uh, including scandals.、Mm. So I think it shows that uh, a very successful uh, crisis management uh, also uh, be helpful for the government to win back、uh, the support. Uh, from、uh, average people in Greece.、Mm. So we understand that the, this new democracy party is a party on the center right. So why do you think the those left wing opposition has、uh, has failed to、uh, coalesce into a united force?、Uh, yes, I think now,、um, uh, including the Greece or some other European countries, we can find out the. Uh, more and more situation of so-called uh, uh, political parties uh, fragment uh, fragment.、Uh, I think now in Greece is,、uh, for example, the、uh, I mean the left wing party or right wing party.、Mm. Uh, they suffer in different degree of this、um, situation or or this uh, uh, difficult times. But I think now uh, for the uh, new democracy parties. Uh, it is good to、uh, consolidate with some 
as we know, some uh, small parties from uh, different winds. But uh, if we take a look at the so-called left party, uh, like uh, the uh, uh, you know the uh, left uh, union yeah. led by uh, the former prime minister Chiplas, uh, mm. uh, yes, it's failed to have some uh, coordination with other parties, and uh, I think it's not only because of the uh, uh, you know some political tactics, and also it's because of the uh, natural of the leaders. As we know, the uh, the leader of the uh, New Democratic Party, I mean, this uh, current uh, prime minister, it is still some more, I mean, capability to get some cooperation or even coalition with some other parties than mm. some other leaders. Okay. So a number of parties from the extreme left or extreme right will also be part of this new parliament in the future. As we can tell from the data, one in three voters this time chose anti-systemic parties, which is perhaps indicating resentment uh, in the segment of the society in this country. So, Doctor Sui, do you think this is this is going to be a challenge that uh, Mitsotakis will need to take into you know take into consideration in his uh, next term? One minute. Yes, I saw you know, uh, now even the uh, New Demo- Democratic Party, when the, uh, as we know, the capability to organize the uh, uh, government by itself. But of course, it's needed to open to any kind of, of cooperation with other parties. Mm. Otherwise, it will also face some challenges. As we know now, uh, for Greece, a lot of challenges, including uh, economic and the debt or some uh, social uh, uh, challenge. So I think to get a cooperative, uh, co- cooperative, uh, mm. I mean, uh, uh, format, especially for the government, very really necessary for this uh, uh, new democracy party in future. Mm. Thank you, as always, for joining us. That was Dr. Cui Hongjian, head of the European Studies Department with the China Institute of International Studies. Unfortunately, that's all the time for this edition of World Today. A quick recap of today's headline news. U.S. and India announced multiple defense and tech deals during Prime Minister Narendra Modi's U.S. trip. Beijing slams U.S. indictments of Chinese companies over fentanyl. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. For more, you can follow us on Twitter at CGTN Radio. I'm Ding Hunting Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.